Truly Fit Podcast Best of 2022. Our top 8 episodes replayed in December to get you ready for 2023. Welcome to Truly Fit. Welcome to the Truly Fit Podcast, where we interview experts in fitness and health to expand our wisdom and wealth. I am your host, Steve Washuda, co-founder of Truly Fit and author of Fitness Business 101. On today's podcast, we're going to be discussing Ashtanga Yoga. What is it? What are the origins of it? Why is it different than other yoga practices? We have Harmony Slater on to discuss all of this. She is a certified Ashtanga yoga teacher. You can find everything about her at Harmony Slater Official on Instagram. She's also a life and wellness coach, and she's the host of the Finding Harmony podcast. We talk about everything from general breath work and meditation to how to become a certified Ashtanga yoga teacher, which blew my mind, her answer did, and I'm sure it will yours as well. It was a great conversation. She's an absolute wealth of knowledge when it comes to everything yoga. With no further ado, here's Harmony. Harmony, thanks so much for joining the Truly Fit Podcast. Why don't you give my listeners and the audience a brief bio on who you are and what you do in the health and fitness industry? Sure. Happy to. Thanks so much for having me, Steve. Um, I'm a certified Ashtanga yoga teacher, an expert in breath work or pranayama, as it's called in Sanskrit, and a health coach or life wellness coach, certified, board certified um, by the National Board of health and wellness coaches in America. So I do some life wellness coaching as well as teaching yoga, being asana practice or the stretching, what we typically uh, understand as yoga these days, um, as well as pranayama or breathwork exercises uh, to bring about more health and wellness and create sacred space within and without in people's lives so that they can you know, relax, de-stress, have better sleep, have better digestion, um, but also connect to that inner voice, to that inner space that's healing and quiet and calm within. So that's that's what I do. I'm sure we'll get into a bit more of how I got to be here, but that's a brief bio of, of what I'm doing right now. I think we've only done maybe one uh, yoga <laughs> podcast, maybe two at the most. We are having somebody on to break down the five most popular yogas and talk a little bit about them. I don't know if this will be released before or after that. So why don't we just go ahead and give a description of Ashtanga yoga. You can give an origin description. Uh, you can give your description, what you think it is, any little tidbits that you can pass on. And, and I will say, if you could explain it from the perspective of not just personal trainers, but general population who may not know the nuances of yoga. Yeah, definitely. Ashtanga is such a funny word. It really frightens people because it's in the Sanskrit language, which is the ancient language of India. Um, but the word itself comes from a text that's called the Patanjali Yoga Sutras. And this is your sort of foundational text on yoga. Pretty much all yoga styles refer back to this text because it's the oldest one that we really have to refer back to, but it's mainly actually a text on meditation practices. It's not really about physical asana practices or moving your body or stretching at all. Um, and the word ashtanga means eight limbs. So ashta means eight, anga means limb. So it's the eight limb path of yoga. So what we typically uh, know these days to be ashtanga yoga is more of like a vigorous dynamic flowing yoga sequence. So it's using breath with the body with sort of energetic um, locks in the body, like squeezing the pelvic floor, drawing in the lower abdomen. But it's sort of the, I would say, 
perennial sequence and style of yoga that any dynamic flow power yoga vinyasa yoga all these different flowing types of yoga that basically you're going to find at any kind of gym is based upon it was a type of yoga that originated with krishnamacharya in mysore india and his student uh, shri k patabi joyce popularized the system through many of his uh, North American and European and Australian students who then went out and taught many of us. And I actually traveled to Mysore. Um, I've made over 15 trips there, long study trips of three months to six months. One trip was eight months. And so to become certified in this specific type of dynamic flowing yoga following a, a set sequence of postures, you have to go to Mysore, India, to the source, to the, the lineage holder at that time was Sri K. Patabi Joyce, now is his grandson, actually, Sharat Rangaswamy Joyce, and, um, and have them sort of teach you and see you practice and get to know you. And then when they feel that you're ready to practice, you have to practice asanas at a very advanced level. So there's uh, six sequences, but you have to at least have completed the third sequence before you can get certification. And there is sort of another level called authorization, which you get before this certified certification. So there's sort of levels of teachers within this sequence. But so that's what we, we understand to be Ashtanga yoga now. It's kind of difficult. You know, it's not really um, the type of yoga we think of when we think of sort of like old women in unitards in a dark room <laughs> stretching. That's like a different style, maybe Hatha yoga or Ayengar yoga. But the Ashtanga yoga is more like what, you know, what gets demonstrated on advertisements or, you know, different um, young, healthy looking people doing miraculous things with their bodies. This all stems from this lineage or style of yoga, this Ishtanga yoga. Um, but it, the word itself refers back to these eight limbs, which um, happens to be a philosophy, a whole philosophy for living. It's a lifestyle philosophy. It's talking about living a life of compassion or nonviolence, um, being honest or truthful with your words, with your speech, uh, not stealing, not taking more than what you need, being generous and and giving and, uh, you know, focusing your energy in certain ways or being very restrained in how you're behaving in your behaviors, as well as having some discipline in your life. So people who are very traditional Ashtanga yoga practitioners practice yoga every day for at least an hour, <laughs> typically, often two hours because the sequences are get longer and longer. <laughs> so you keep adding more and more time. And, you know, they're typically very regimented with their diet, with their lifestyle, with their sleep schedules, sort of a whole, a whole uh, package that goes along with the practice of the Ashtanga yoga sequence of asanas. Let me clarify one thing. Mm -hmm. If you, let's say, go to San Diego on a trip and uh, you want to take a yoga class and you look yoga up and it says, oh, there's an Ashtanga yoga class. I then, I then, uh, go off the assumption that that person has traveled to India to learn, or are there other smaller certifications that are, let's say, like in the United States, and people can still claim that they're Ashtanga yoga certified? 
people do claim all over that they're certified Ashtanga yoga teachers, but if you're very accurate in your description, it, yeah. you would have to have gone to India to receive authorization or certification to teach. That is very interesting. But there's millions of teacher trainings. And so then they just say, oh, I'm a certified Hatha teacher, Vinyasa teacher, Ashtanga yoga teacher. You know, they sort of like name all the yogas flow teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, if you're like very, um, if you're a very serious practitioner, uh, you would probably go to San Diego and look to see who says that they're authorized or certified. And you might even go to the website in India, the Sharat Joyce Yoga Center website, and look to see which teachers are approved by him. And then you would go and practice with that teacher. Uh, yeah, that was my next question. I think you might have just answered it. So do you <laughs> use a particular terminology like authorized on your website to sort of differentiate yourself from the others? Yeah. I mean, because I have certification, I do say certified, but it's a, it's kind of a vague term. Nobody really, it doesn't make a difference to most people, but to like a few people who actually know what it is, it makes a, a big difference too. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you, you would hope that it would make a difference and that maybe uh, you can uh, continue to spread the word. And that yeah. does make a difference because it is, it's something we talk about a lot in this podcast is sort of the barrier to entry for different health and fitness and nutrition related things sometimes it's very easy and that's not a good thing. And mm -hmm. at the same time, I'm, I don't really know the answer. You want everyone to be involved in it and have a chance to do it. And I've met people who are great at, let's say, whatever, yoga or personal training or nutrition related advice who have little to no certifications and vice versa. People have the highest level who don't really have any good information to give. So it's a difficult thing, but um, it's just very interesting. I had no idea that that was, that, <laughs> that was the case with Ashtanga Yoga. Yeah, it is. It's such a, it's, you know, I think anything in the health field is really tricky. Even like when I became a health and wellness coach, again, there's no real, um, I mean, there is sort of a, now a national board, um, committee and that they have like, a um, I guess, a what do you say? Standardized exam sure. that if you want to get certified by the national board, you have to take that, but it's pretty recent. It's only in like maybe the last, like four or five years that they've really um, been in place to certify health coaches, because otherwise anybody can say they're a health coach. Anybody can say that they're a wellness coach and there's nothing to really yeah. and they do. <laughs> test them, right? <laughs> and, they, and they still do because it's, yeah. it's very difficult for the general population to sort of weed through what is certified, what is authorized, what is not. And even just the levels where it's like, okay, yeah. did, did this person get a certification overnight because they paid $200 and they filled out a form? Or did this person study for years behind another professional and go through this process? It's, I don't have the answer. Um, I don't yeah. pretend to, I'm not really sure what it is. I, I hope that someday there are less, less of these certifications and, and they involve having people to have to do more things. So for example, Steve, would have to maybe shadow an Ashtanga yoga teacher for a hundred hours, even if he's not going to use it in a day-to-day -day practice with, mm -hmm. with his personal training clients, he understands what it is and, and allows him to understand the body as a whole better. And I, th I think we need to have yoga teachers and nutritionists and orthopedics and personal mm -hmm. trainers and all sort of work together to develop a program where we can really help our clients in a, you know, the full spectrum wholesale health Totally. Totally. I think that would be amazing. And, and I think that really good, like health trainers or, you know, coaches or yoga teachers, I do feel like if that's like really your passion in your field, you do tend to kind of like go outside 
to like explore other areas so that you can be of greater benefit. And like you say, I mean, some are, some are maybe like never certified, but have a lot of like done a lot of research and a lot of personal development and like a lot of practice. And so maybe they're amazing. Right. And others who get certified, maybe just get certified and like, don't do any of it. <laughs> yeah. It's something to be said about throwing just, you know, anecdotal, uh, work out. I don't like to do that. You know, some people don't have the certifications, but they've been working with themselves and other people for a certain amount of years and they've developed this experience. And I think that that does that does hold some weight with me. Um, but anyway, I think we're getting a little off topic here. I can go on a, <laughs> I can go on a tangent for an hour about the uh, the barrier to entry and, and how we fix yeah. that problem. But uh, tell me about uh, your breath work personally. Is is your breath work learned from Ashtanga yoga or is that separate from Ashtanga yoga and you integrate them? Yeah. So when we talk about the eight limbs, part of, you know, we have the lifestyle disciplines, which are the first two limbs. Um, a lot is encompassed in that. And then we have the asana, which is the movement, you know, the stretching, the putting your body in certain shapes to create uh, greater circulation and cleansing within. Um, and then you have the pranayama, which is the breath work, which prana means energy, but it also means breath and ayama means to extend or expand. So through controlling your breath or lengthening the breath, the inhale and the exhale, um, through holding the breath, you are extending or expanding your energy or um, increasing your life energy. So this has sort of a double meaning and that's the one, two, three, fourth limb the fifth limb is like starting to move into meditation. So it's withdrawing the senses. And then the last three limbs are different levels of meditation. So concentration, meditation, and then sort of full absorption. Um, so it's like a whole, a whole system for sure. But I did study pranayama or the breath work in Mysore, India with Sri K. Patabi Joyce. But I also actually studied mainly um, most of my time also from an institute in India, but a different city in India, another area called Lonavala um, with Sri O.P. Tiwari, who is another Indian teacher who his whole life has been dedicated to the practice and study of yoga and specifically the breathing exercises, the breath work, the pranayama exercises that are all based on a long history of, of practice uh, being passed down from teacher to student. And all of the practices are found in an ancient text, a medieval text that was written around the 12th century called the Hatha Pradipika. Um, again, a nice Sanskrit word to freak everyone out, <laughs> but it's, um, it's all very, <laughs> I could, but <laughs> it's all very, um, you know, very traditional, very uh, systematic so that you're uh, slowly starting to expand your inhale and you're always lengthening the exhale. And then you're teaching yourself to hold the breath for longer and longer periods of time in the middle um, and everything grows together. And so I practiced with him for over 15 years as well, going to India or Thailand or different uh, retreats that he was teaching around the world. Um, basically, you know, using this practice and this breath work daily to see how it changes your nervous system, your mind and your body and starts to maybe awaken a, a higher level of consciousness within. So that's uh, how I started learning breath work. And it's a really powerful practice. I would say it's even more powerful than just like twisting and bending and stretching your body. <laughs> yeah. And, and obviously for those who don't know, you 
uh, and you could expand on this, you need the breath work in order to meditate, right? Th those, those things come in, in concert with each other. As you learn to focus on the breath, you learn to uh, you get to the next steps in your sort of meditation journey. Yeah, typically it's, it's understood that way that first you learn to control the breath and you start to start to then control your energy within you start to withdraw your senses from all the distractions that are trying to pull us into the external world, you move into the internal world. And then more you can pull the senses in and focus one pointedly on the breath and controlling the breath, the mind will automatically move into a state of meditation. But that's a very specific philosophy to sort of the um, Hatha yoga or the yoga practice, Ashtanga yoga, however you want to call it, Raja yoga, um, using the breath work as the entry point or the gateway to meditation. If you look at Buddhist traditions um, like Vipassana meditation, which I've also practiced and studied for a long time, they don't manipulate the breath so much. They're not using the, the breath work or the pranayama to control the mind. They're just using a uh, I guess the regular breath or natural breathing and trying to focus the mind on the natural incoming and outgoing breath rather than trying to lengthen or extend or control or hold the breath. So in these, let's say these meditation apps, I have one that I use called waking up. Yeah. I would, would tell you that I don't think I've got to the point yet where I'm actually meditating. I'm just in the process of breath work and I've been doing it for two years, but it's very difficult. Yeah. Um, do do, do these practices come more from one end than another end? Like these meditation apps, are they, are they more in line with a, a particular set of yoga and values? I think it probably depends on who is, um, you know, doing the app, yeah. <laughs> but, sure. but I feel like in, in the West, you know, in North America, probably in Europe as well. Um, and probably, I mean, probably all over the world these days, <laughs> but we've combined, we've taken a lot of Buddhist teachings and philosophy and practices and a lot of yoga teaching philosophy and practices and kind of like smush them together into one sort of big category called like mindfulness. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. we're using, you know, different practices from these two traditions, um, to help to, you know, control our stress levels, to um, focus our mind, to hopefully one day move into a deeper state of meditation. Um, and I think it kind of draws on these traditions from, from both. And it's, it's sort of interesting because Buddhism originated in India hmm. and the yogis and the Buddhist monks, the practitioners were very much in conversation and kind of came up together. So there's a lot of similarities between the two traditions anyway. Um, it's just that Buddhism eventually left India and went to Tibet and Sri Lanka and Burma and China and Japan, where it flourished and India more the um, other traditions flourished or the other phil philosophical systems. So what are the physiological benefits one can see from, let's not go down the path of like, extreme meditation as far as someone being an expert, but like somebody just focusing on their breath work, what, what will they say? Yeah. So the breath works amazing because it works directly with your nervous system. Um, but also in that way, you need to kind of be careful, which is one thing that I, when we're talking about sort of that entry point, like, you know, I think it's really important that you investigate your teacher because there's like, you can become a breathwork. There's a lot of like breathwork coaches or breathwork trainers 
who have yeah. like taken like a weekend course or, or maybe even like a two month course or something. Right. But it's not something that's in their body. That's in their practice. They haven't been doing these practices for very long. Um, if something's going wrong with you, they might not know how to help you or fix it. And yeah. so that's sort of the, I think the danger is that you're working directly with your nervous system. So you can kind of mess yourself up if you're doing it incorrectly. Um, but, you know, the in India, everything's kind of metaphorical. So we have both our nostrils, our left and our right nostril are connected to what they would call the sun and the moon channel. And the sun channels like the day, the heating, the active energy, the moon channels, the the cooling, um, the restorative, the softening kind of uh, energy. But these two nostrils are also then related to the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system, which are the two branches of our autonomic nervous system. And so by manipulating, you know, the way that you're breathing, you can actually create more resiliency in your nervous system, which helps to bounce back from a stressful situation. So it's, um, you know, when we're stressed, our heart rate goes up, especially like chronic stress. We, I think everybody's kind of has heard, you know, all of the negative effects of these little chronic stressors all day long in our life. Right. And then we're drinking the coffee too, and you know, our adrenals are fatigued and we're building up inflammation and that's leading to its own like problems, autoimmune disorders. And it's sort of a big mess, right? Because we don't know how to relax. And so you have that busy mind, your, your mind's stuck in like that beta wave, that processing, you try to lie down, you try to go to sleep and your mind's still processing your body's like unable to move out of that fight or flight response, um, into that parasympathetic state, into that rest and digest and relax and release where you can, you know, like feel, feel in love with, with your partner, where you can experience beauty, where you can feel creative and have that creative energy, that creative flow. We need to be able to relax for that. And so this is where things like exercise and fitness or yoga practice, you know, really become very powerful tools because they help to move us out of fight or flight. It's called fight or flight for a reason, right? Because if you run or you do something physical, it's a natural um, release of that stress, your body will come back into a more relaxed state, hopefully. (laughs) Could could you maybe explain in in your own words, Mm -hmm. and this is a leading question, but how it's it's different for one to, let's say, disassociate than to meditate. Meaning like sometimes people will go, oh, well, you know, I meditate when I'm working out, put my music on. I don't have a care in the world. I enjoy it. I'm like, well, that's not really meditating, right? You still have a million thoughts going on. You're looking at Bob on the treadmill and thinking he's, he's kind of slow. And you're looking at Judy over there doing a deadlift and thinking her form is wrong. Like you're not meditating. You think you're disassociating from like, and maybe you are in a sense from like your standard day-to-day problems, but your brain is still running in the background. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a really great question because I like to think of it as like tuning out or tuning in. Right. And so you can, when you put on the music or you're just like doing your thing, you can kind of tune out your stress, right? You're focusing on other things like 
the music or, you know, like you say, all the things around you, you're sort of the mind's still working. It's still going. It's still moving however it wants. You're not really in control of what you're thinking or doing. And you're not really trying to control it. You're just like trying to relax it so that it's not like stressing out or thinking or ruminating over something, you know, that happened before you got on that treadmill and like we're running. Um, But when you tune in, it's actually about like whether it's yoga or breath work or meditation, it's taking one pointed focus. So for all of these practices, typically you would use the breath. Um, So like with Ashtanga yoga, each movement, you know, you lift your arms, you inhale, you fold forward, you exhale. Each movement is synchronized with a breath. When you're doing a pranayama practice, you're inhaling, then you're holding for a certain amount of time, then you're exhaling for a certain amount of time. So you're focusing on the length of the breath, the quality of the breath. um, And, and the mind can't wander because if it wanders, you lose count, you lose your focus, right? And same in the yoga practice, your mind can't wander, even though of course it's our minds wander all the time, but you notice right away because then you're like, oh, I'm not breathing correctly. You bring it back. And same in a meditation practice. If you're using the breath as your point of focus and you're trying to concentrate on the breath and tune into the quality of the breath, the sensation of the breath, you're becoming very embodied, right? You're becoming very present to your immediate experience, to your immediate sensation, to what you're feeling within yourself. And when the mind starts to wander, like go on vacation to Hawaii or think about, you know, what you have to do after you're finished meditating, you notice it becomes like a disruption, right? You gently just bring your focus then back to the breath and it becomes this pattern of the mind going off and no, come back. Nope come back. (laughs) And I'm sure you've experienced that, right? Where you're just continually gently bringing your attention back to that place where you're supposed to focus. The idea is that the more you practice, the more that you do these concentration exercises, the less the mind wanders, the more easily it tunes in, the longer it stays focused in that one spot, in that one place, which has a very um, positive effect on your central nervous system. That's a great definition. I really like that term tune in because mm. I think the average person who's, who's never tried to meditate or doesn't understand breath work and meditation would not think that's the case. They would think it's more of like a sleep-esque state where I'm just completely disassociated where it's not. It's, it's that you're, you're hyper-focused. It's just on one thing. Um, and not letting the surrounding things, you know, get, get your attention. And again, this is something I'm not good at. Uh, <laughs> I don't I'm, think most of us are good at it. Yeah, I'm still an absolute <laughs> beginner. And I don't know if I'll ever be good at it, but I, but I do think it's important. And I, and I have seen if, if nothing else, there have been benefits psychologically with me, I think, mm-hmm. you know, just being calmer, um, making, uh, making more conscious decisions to maybe wait before I answer questions, things like that. I feel like mm-hmm. I, th- that have helped me. Are there any other sort of psychological things that, that you personally anecdotally have experienced from your meditation practice or others that you work with? Yeah, I think, you know, you just become less reactive. Like you're saying you're um, I think when you're, you're always in that little bit of stress, you know, we've all, we've all been there. We all get there where you feel a little irritable all the time. Right. Or you're like a little sleep deprived. You're a little irritable all the time. You snap react more quickly at people. 
when you take these moments, you know, even two minutes during the day to just like focus on your breathing, to go within, to feel embodied, to get really concentrated on sensation, whether it's the sensation of the breath or the sensation of two fingers rubbing together, or the sensation of, you know, the hair on the top of the head, whatever sort of point of focus you want to tune into it. Uh, I would say down regulates your nervous system so that you okay. move into that more like rest, relax, um, into a space where you're not just you know, stressed out anymore. You're able to like come back into yourself and that then you're taking longer, deeper, fuller breaths. Your body's also able to take up more oxygen. Your brain's also able to take up more oxygen so you can think more clearly. You become more focused. It becomes really easy to like um, process things and to like get things done efficiently because your brain isn't like running in a million directions. It's like now sort of being channelized in one direction in the direction you want to move it in. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's what I've sort of found that it's, it's a really amazing thing because you get like, in a way you become more productive, even though it seems like taking, you know, 15 minutes or two minutes or 10 minutes, however, you know, 20 minutes, an hour out of your day to breathe or to, you know, do this type of meditation practice, um, you know, you would get less done because you're losing hours in a sense, right? Where you're or losing time because you're focusing on your breathing or you're focusing on your, your, you know, meditation, but ultimately it gives you hours back because you're able to see things more clearly and like be more specific and direct in your actions. I think like take actions in a way that's very conscious and deliberate. And like you say, build in a little bit of a, a space in the response time so that you're responding rather than reacting, which in itself like solves a lot of problems yeah. for us. Yeah. <laughs> We're not like running in circles trying to clean up, you know, messes or fires that didn't need to be started in the first place. Do you have any first time advice that you give to either the people you work with or that you have been given when somebody is just initially starting this game of breath work leading into meditation? Yeah, I think probably one of the best ways um, is to stimulate your vagus nerve. So Maybe you've heard of the vagus nerve. It's the 10th cranial nerve and it comes down through your, you know, from your brainstem down through your jaw, it touches your voice box or your larynx, and then it moves. It's like the wandering nerve. That's why it's called the vagus nerve. It touches every major organ system in your body and then terminates at the pelvic floor. And there's a couple of ways that you can stimulate this vagus nerve. And what the vagus nerve is, is it's the break to your autonomic nervous system. So when you're stressed out, if you have good vagal tone or the vagus nerve is like, um, I would say like awake, really awake, it's not like kind of sleepy and it takes a while to like activate, then you're going to come back to a normal or neutral sort of place in your nervous system a lot faster than somebody who doesn't have good vagal tone. Right. So if this nerve is a little bit tired and like not used very often, then you're going to just kind of be stuck in the stressed out space. If you start to stimulate it, then it uh, can switch on quicker, which can move you out of that stress response into a more, um, you know, relaxed, beautiful space. 
So one of the ways is by lengthening the exhale. So even if you just take 10 breaths, this is super simple, 10 breaths, inhaling through both nostrils and then exhaling for double the length of your inhale. So you're starting to kind of focus your mind because you have to kind of count like maybe three seconds or four seconds or five seconds. And then you have to lengthen the exhale. So six seconds, eight seconds, 10 seconds. And it'll take about two minutes just to do 10 breaths like that. And if you just in the middle of the day, you're feeling like, oh, I can't focus. I'm really tired. And you just stop, sit down, take a nice deep inhale. And then a longer exhale, trying to lengthen the exhale for double the length. That lengthening the exhale starts to stimulate or trigger that vagus nerve, which then moves you immediately more into that parasympathetic state where you're going to feel more relaxed, more calm, more um, like within yourself. It's going to move your brain into it more of an alpha pattern instead of being stuck in that beta pattern where you're like, you know, consciously like consistently just like making decisions and analyzing and judging and like, right. It moves you into a more creative flow, like relaxed brainwave. Um, There's another thing you can do because it's also stimulated through talking or singing or humming. So any kind of vibration of the vocal cords will help to strengthen and tone your vagus nerve as well. So, so that's why, like, sometimes if you put on music and you're like singing right to your favorite song you start to really like relax and feel good because you're moving out of a place of Mm. of stress and like feeling worried or anxious or upset and moving into a more relaxed like creative happy loving receptive space um so you could sing a song (laughs) or you could hum Um, There's one breathing practice where you inhale through both nostrils and then you exhale with a humming sound. It's called the humming bee practice. It has a Sanskrit name, but I won't scare you with that. (laughs) Um, And you just exhale again for this time for as long as you possibly can with the humming sound. So you'll inhale and then exhale. and repeat and you do that maybe 10 times and you just like feel the vibration in your body listen to the sound and just like it's again emphasizing that longer exhale but plus you get the vibration effects in your body it really calms your mind um it's great if you have trouble sleeping it's really good to do before bed because it automatically puts you more into um, that space where you're able to fall asleep easily the other way is like it's a feedback loop right when you feel um you know loving when you feel empathetic when you feel like you're in the flow and there's a lot of creativity moving um you're automatically strengthening and toning the vagus nerve, right? So you can do it by like stimulating the vagus nerve, or you could just sit and like, you know, do gratitude journaling or gratitude listing, or just think of people you love and feel love, you know, in those moments. And that will also help to, again, move you out of that sort of like, ah, stressed out place into a more relaxed, 
parasympathetic state, which you really want to be in, you know, we don't want to be stressed out all the time because it not only leads to mental problems, like increased anxiety and depression, but it also leads to a lot of physical problems as well. Yeah, the vagus nerve gets a bad rap. Uh, typically, when you mention it's taboo, it's, you know, woo woo, let's say. Right. Uh, but we did an episode, which is one of my most listened to episodes for some reason, uh, on the vagus nerve. It's just called Vagus Nerve 101 with a physical yeah. therapist. And she goes down sort of the physiological, you know, components and then everything mm-hmm. else and the studies or the lack thereof. You know, sometimes there haven't been enough studies in certain areas showing what exactly the vagus nerve is doing. That doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean it's not doing it because it's not. They haven't proven that it hasn't done it, so, so to speak. Right. So it's it was a very interesting episode. And for anyone who wants to learn more about that and go down that rabbit hole, I, I will <laughs> self promotion here. Vegas, yeah, the Truly Fit podcast. I'm gonna I'm gonna tune in and listen to that one next. Yeah. Well, because I, you know, I having known nothing about it, uh, I made sure I I sort of pushed her a little bit and asked the tough questions because, mm. um, you know, from a personal training standpoint we we don't get taught those sorts of things right it's not really there is no mind body connection it's just body right. um yeah. now you have you have interpersonal client connections and mm-hmm. through that and through experience you learn how much that matters and the dynamic of your relationships matter and then you know every trainer takes their own avenue for for niching so to speak right so you may niche in an area that is a little bit more spiritual or mind body where mm-hmm. some people niche in an area where they're just analyzing the body you know, physically and they're not going that route, but yeah. um, nevertheless, you have to eventually merge all of these things or at least work with someone else who's merging these things, right? Because it it matters for your client, right? The, the psychological side and the emotional side. If your client is stressed and they're not sleeping at night and they're divorcing their significant other <laughs> and their dog just died, guess what? They're not going to have the energy to work out or maybe they're more likely to get injured, not just because yeah. they're not paying attention, but because everything else that's going on. So yeah, that's super interesting. And it's, it's fascinating too. Cause I think sometimes like the, the, you know, spiritual side or the mental emotional components are a little bit scary for people, but really anything you're doing to your body is changing that side, that spiritual connection, that mental emotional connection, the same way that, you know, when you tap into the mental emotional stuff, the spiritual stuff, it can also like change your physiology as well. Right. And so I had one student who we were doing breath work and even after just like two weeks, she lost five pounds. She changed nothing else in her like day-to-day life. She just added in, you know, 10 minutes of breathing in the morning and she lost five pounds and like kept it off. And it's like, it's amazing, right? Like it's not something you'd think would be like an immediate result of just changing the way that you breathe. But when we're stressed out or we're going through a very stressful situation, you know, our body's going to, you know, hold things like increased cortisol. It's going to hold, you know, onto body weight because it feels stressed out. And it's like, oh no, we might need this later. right? Yeah. It's the, it's the sort of the chain of events that happens. The first physiological thing is, yeah, maybe I'm just opening up my lungs and, and, and getting a better sense of my breath and having, you know, better breathing practices, but then that sets off a chain of things, right? Then mm-hmm. it could be that now that you're breathing and focused on your breath and you're lowering cortisol and so on and so forth. I always compare the body to a car, maybe not the best, you know, analogy or comparison, yeah. but there's different things that you can change in a car at any given time to make it run better. It's not just that the car just needs gas and and that's it, right? You have to change the oil. You have to change the tires. You have to make sure that all the different liquids are filled and that the car is resting for a certain amount of time. There's, there's a lot of intricacies and you don't know which one that you may be missing unless you're making, unless you're doing them all. 
Yeah, yeah. Or at least like aware <laughs> that maybe, maybe the problem isn't actually like a physical problem. Maybe it's like occurring beneath the surface and you have to go a little deeper. Yeah. Uh, so walk me through, I would call it uh, your client experience. Steve signs up for Harmony's class. I walk in through the door. You start to lower the lights. What, what are the first five minutes <laughs> of your class like? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it kind of depends in the Ashtanga yoga tradition. So funny talking about this because it's so it's so kind of weird to people that aren't don't do the class. But there's different types of classes. So you could come into a yoga class that's a led class that's guided where I would talk you through each and every asana. And that's sort of more your typical kind of class that, you know, gets taught these days. Um, it's similar to like a vinyasa or flow or power yoga style. Um, or we have something that is typically called my source style. Sometimes it's called self-practice style. And that's where you already know the sequence of asanas because in this um, style of yoga, there's a set sequence. So you know the sequence of asanas up to a certain point. And as a teacher, um, there's no talking, really. There's no like direct guidance, except there's one-to-one -one guidance for students. So it's more of like an open space where you come in, you start doing maybe your sun salutations, uh, you start moving through the postures. And as a teacher teaching this Mysore style or self-practice style, I would like give you adjustments, physical adjustments in your body to help like open up your spine or to lengthen your hamstrings or um, to create a better alignment in the body. You know, if something's a little bit off, you're typically not practicing in a space with mirrors because that's very distracting again, where you're looking outside yourself all the time. You want to go in and try and feel the alignment, feel your body in space, listen to your breath, move with your breath. So it's quite quiet, quite meditative. And the students would come in. And even if you're a brand new student and you don't know the sequence, at that point, the teacher would guide you. The teacher would lead you through the first, you know, sun salutations and through the first postures directly, like one-to-one. -one. And then maybe you'd repeat a couple of times so that you'd remember. And the idea is that you're going to come back the next day and do it all over again. So that's sort of one style of class that you can find all over the world. People all over the world are practicing this, this sequence and style of yoga, this Mysore self-practice style. And it's really beautiful because, you know, I could go to Tokyo and not speak a word of Japan and walk into a Mysore class and know exactly what to do. The teacher immediately is going to recognize that I, I know what to do. And all of a sudden you have an entire community of people there that you're wow. connected to. So it's a pretty incredible experience actually to be able to go almost anywhere in the world and have a space that you can practice and a teacher that can help you. So that's kind of beautiful. But if it was a lead class, which is your typical like guided class, then you'd probably come in to the space and we would, I like to always start with a little seated kind of meditation guided, um, looking within, you know, watching the breath, just kind of taking note of where you're at, um, on that day. And I might even add in some breath work at that point, doing a little, you know, maybe alternate nostril breathing or some type of, of breathing pattern. And then move into a asana class where I would guide you through the movements and we would do some typical kind of stretching. I like to always move the spine in all directions. So forward fold, backward fold, twisting side to side, 
and then also compression and then extension as much as you can. So, um, ultimately I think that's sort of what we need for, to keep our bodies generally in good health is to move in all those ranges, emotions, and directions to the best of our ability. And then we would end with a period of relaxation where you get to rest and, and let go. And usually I guide people through a little bit of a guided relaxation time, which, you know, can be like a slight meditation, but you don't have to sit up and hold your body straight. You can lie down on the floor and just really relax and let go and, and let it all kind of sink in and then tune back in to your body and see what's changed for you. See what shifted, see what you're feeling now. Cause I think that's really important because all of these things that we do, I mean, everything that we do, everything that we eat, everything that we, we do in our lives uh, affects us, right? We don't think about it often enough. We don't realize it often enough. And I think it's really helpful to like, before you do something kind of feel like, okay, what's going on with me? How am I feeling? And then you do the thing and then you're like checking back in, like, how do I feel now? Right. What did that do for me? And I think it's really important to have that before and after uh, awareness. It's very important. And as personal trainers, it's very important that we teach our clients how to do that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's teaching them how to do it, not only psychologically, which is not something, you know, we learn how to do if, if you have that skill set, you have that skill set, but uh, verbally, meaning some clients will come back and say, this hurts. Well, describe the hurt. What kind of pain is this? Is it a shooting pain? Is it a stinging pain? Is it a soreness pain? Does it feel like a bruise? Does it feel like a hit? Right. And, yeah. and, and using that language over and over and over and really digging in my, my you know, my, my wife is a, a pediatrician and she calls it the, what else, what else, yeah. what else, what else, what else? You just have to keep asking because the, you know, somebody doing yoga for the first or second time is not going to have the vocabulary of the body that harmony has in order mm. to explain what's going on. Right. Harmony might say, you know what? I just, I feel like my calf is a, is a, is a little tight here, my soleus. And I, I think I have to make sure that I'm watching when I'm in down dog or whatever. Right. So like mm -hmm. the client's not going to be able to say that to the personal trainer. So you have to really dig and use a combination of our parlance with layman's terms and yeah. figure out what's like, what is going on. And I think the best way to do that is to try new things like for a trainer to try Ashtanga yoga and then, right. <laughs> and then ask themselves those questions, say, what am I yeah. feeling? How do, how would I describe this? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's great. It's so, it's always fun to like try new disciplines and to like, like experiment in different areas, you know, and especially like as a, as a yoga teacher, you know, I don't get to do that quite as much as I used to, yeah. you know, you tend to kind of stay in your lane and, and do your practice. But I think there's a lot of benefit to really like trying different movements and different ranges of motion in your body. And also like even just developing strength, um, you know, yoga is a lot of, of stretching, of lengthening of, you know, a, you develop strength, but it's a different kind of strength. It's not so much like the pulling strength, right? Mm -hmm. And, yeah. uh, and it's good to create balance in the body. Otherwise, even if you're doing all the yoga in the world, you can end up kind of imbalanced. And then that also leads to more injuries, right? Yeah. I, I sent a lot of my golfers to trainers that I knew who were certified in yoga or have mm -hmm. been doing yoga for a long time, because there's a big crossover in golf movements and yoga movements. And sometimes they don't even know. It's like, I think this is like the a really big missing thing in the industry. There just needs to be like this golf centric yoga fusion where you have to sort of 
have that thoracic rotation, like something you would do in triangle, but really right. be, be aware of what your hips and your legs are doing. Cause in golf, you never want to sway. You have to keep right. your lower body stable and your upper body has to rotate. And there's so many of those things where the further you can rotate backwards and the more you can open up your shoulders, the more swing speed you can generate. So yoga is just, it's so good, right. For opening up. Um, and you see all these golfers now picking up heavy weights and thinking I need to get stronger, 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 stronger. Right. When really what it is, is they need to get stronger, but they need to work the smaller muscles, the accessory muscles and, and loosen up. And I always, I, I push my golfers to go to yoga. And even though I'm not doing it as much, yeah. uh, don't, do, don't do as I say, do don't, yeah. say whatever the saying goes, do as I say, yeah. not as I do. Um, yeah. It's funny you bring that up. That was a very popular class here back in the um, early 2000s when I started practicing yoga um, was yoga for golfers. It was like one of the most popular ones. Yeah. Well, yeah. golfers are willing to do anything. So they'll spend thousands of dollars right. a month on memberships and clubs and private lessons. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you throw fitness in the mix and they're, they're willing to do whatever it is to, to get a little bit better. But it is, it is a huge benefit for golfers. And then also any sort of you know, I talk about this, our goal with our clients should always be long-term health and wellness. And for golfers, no different, right? They want to be on the golf course for your client. They want to be on the ground playing with their grandchildren or, you know, walking yeah. around a room with their wife. They can't take these trips in retirement if they're not healthy. And the best way to do that is to make sure you're going, working through all planes of motion, like you described, yeah. and then using different modalities and not just, not just doing the same thing over and over, which, you know, yoga is, is very challenging in that respect. Yeah, I think even like some professional NFL players, like the football players have also like started practicing or adding yoga into their like warm up routine or what they're doing, like on the field before practice or after practice to um, reduce the amount of injuries. Because again, like if you're just really strong, often then the muscles aren't able to like lengthen so much and you're more yeah. easily like going to get that tear of, of the ligament or the tendon. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's helpful to be kind of a bit more balanced in our, our bodies <laughs> and our agree. minds too. And our minds. <laughs> uh, Harmony, this has been a wealth of information. I appreciate your time. Tell the listeners where they can find uh, more about Ashtanga Yoga and more yeah. about you specifically where you practice and where they can best find you online. Yeah, well, I would love they can come to my website, harmonyslater.com. Easy to remember. Um, and pretty much you can find everything there. Um, links to my breathwork program that I teach a couple of times a year. You get direct one-on-one -on -one guidance from me as well as like it's all pre-recorded videos and audio and PDFs. So it's a great course that you can uh, take. And I even have a free uh, breathwork essential breathwork practice course that you can sign up for and and get the little mini course it's only like three or four modules so it's easy it goes through some very simple practices that you could just implement at home and uh, a free sort of audio and video of a 15 minute breathing practice with a meditation so that's something your listeners might really be interested in as well so all of that you can find at harmonyslater.com and in person, I'm sort of around traveling and teaching um, in different areas. So if you want to um, look me up, I usually have a schedule up on my website there where you can find me in person. So. My guest today has been Harmony Slater. Harmony, thank you for joining the Truly Fit Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the Truly Fit Podcast. 
please subscribe, rate, and review on your listening platform. And feel free to email us. We'd love to hear from you. Social at trulyfit.app. Thanks again.